Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Medicine has undergone such a radical change since the mid-19th century that certain aspects of medical care seem as though they could never have existed before modern advances. Surgery is one of these, invasive, traumatic, and obviously difficult. But surgical procedures have existed for longer than we as human beings have been writing things down. Today, we'll talk about some ancient surgical procedures, as well as the hurdles that needed to be cleared before the invention of modern surgery. Oh, and one more thing before we get started. Uh, We try to keep this show as family-friendly as possible, but we are talking about medical procedures, and there are a few times where we do need to get um, fairly descriptive about kind of gross stuff. It is surgery. So uh, just so you know beforehand. Let's begin. All right, we're here on HI 101 with Yumiko Hutchenruther. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. It's nice to have you back on the show. (laughs) It's nice to be back. And we're going to talk today about uh, the history of surgery, which is probably the broadest request I've ever had (laughs) for a topic. But I was really excited to do it anyways. Awesome. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. this. Yeah. Because where where do you start with something that broad, right? (laughs) And I think... Probably what we're going to do is obviously we'll look at some uh, some ancient examples of, of surgery and mm-hmm. talk about what people have been up to because surgery has been around longer than history has been around, right? It's prehistoric. It's, it's, it predates our written records of, of what has happened as human beings. But there's three really big problems when it comes to history, maybe er, to surgery, uh, maybe even four. You could uh, break it up into four problems. Basically, it comes down to... Uh, number one, our knowledge of the human body, so knowing what to cut, right? Mm-hmm. Number two, bleeding, because you know when you cu- start cutting into stuff, people start losing blood, and you, you lose too much of that. You can't just hold it in. <laughs> it's really hard to do voluntarily. <laughs> you usually have to sort something out. Number three, dealing with the pain, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's it's really really difficult <laughs> to go through something like a major surgery without some sort of help for that. And finally, the risk of infection. Because anytime you have any sort of open wound, you're, you're looking at a risk of infection. I mean, our, our skin, people don't think about the skin as, a, as an organ necessarily, but it's, it's one of the most important in that it protects everything else in your body from infection. It's really yeah. good at keeping things out and keeping other things in and de- determining which is which. So I think those are the things that we'll kind of focus on as, as major advancements in surgery. And kind of parcel it up that way. Awesome. And uh, I think that's the best way to organize it. Obviously, we'll get off track, but that's kind of how this show goes. <laughs> yeah, sounds so, good. So, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, 
we use this the word surgery a lot. Basically, what we're talking about in terms of surgery is manipulating, like physically manipulating the human body in order for for therapeutic reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're trying to heal through manipulation as opposed to things like giving someone a medication or treating through keeping people separate from toxins or or other things like that. It's a very like hands-on way of healing. Mm -hmm. And because it's so different than other methods, specifically, you know, what we would call internal medicine, right? So uh, what would have started off as as herbal medicine and kind of developing into pharmaceutical medicine, uh, it's it's really been considered a, a completely different thing, basically for all of its history, right? Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, uh, in, in ancient texts, they're actually not necessarily included in the same body of work. But because of these problems that we've been talking about, uh, th- the number of surgical procedures that can actually be done are fairly limited. Right. Because, you know, you, again, run into blood loss, pain management, uh, infection. They're not really necessarily doing uh, open heart surgery uh, before all of these things are in place, right? Mm-hmm. The oldest operation that we have any evidence for, and it's uh, archaeological evidence, not historical evidence, uh, is something called trepanning. You're familiar with trepanning? Yeah. So it's basically, depending on when and where we're talking, either drilling into the skull or actually taking uh, implements and scraping at the skull until you get through it. And this was done for a number of reasons. Sometimes we're only uh, speculating as to why people would perform trepanation. It seems like it was often used as sort of a, a... an act of desperation basically for healing things like epilepsy for what we would call mental illness now which would be seen as as more like demonic possession a lot of times when mm-hmm. we're talking about prehistory so this was done not post-mortem then like this was not kind of like a research curiosity driven activity <laughs> we know for sure that this was done while people were alive because we found oh. skulls yeah, I know. It's, oh. it's really terrible when, when we talk about all of this stuff. Listen, you pick the topic. I know. <laughs> I asked for, for this. You're, you're in for the long haul, for sure. I'm just thinking like brain surgery with no kind of anesthesia or anything to get you through that first, you know. Right. So we know that people survived it because we found skulls where trepanation has been performed, where the edges of the of the hole that's been cut are smooth. Are, are smooth. Mm-hmm. And when you cut through a skull post-mortem it leaves like sharp edges that means the skull has somewhat healed oh. this this wound and and so people have gone about their lives with this hole huh. in their skull and i mean there are valid medical reasons for an operation like trepanation mostly due to swelling of the brain yeah and so like there's a good chance that people's lives were actually saved by this uh procedure you know, another another reason that nece- they wouldn't have necessarily realized that it was why they were performing it. But if someone has a brain tumor, it can cause pressure within the brain and some of these symptoms that would that would be looked on as, you know, mental illness or, mm-hmm. or possession or however they're framing it in their minds. You know, if somebody is exhibiting these symptoms because of brain swelling and then you cut into the skull, it's going to relieve that swelling and uh, relieve this person's symptoms. I mean, it's not going to help with the the tumor itself. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you're going to see positive results from it, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. But yeah, we've been doing that for a really, really long time. There was a, a cache of skull found in France where more than 50% of the skulls had had trepanation performed. 
you know, there's also, I mean, we're, we're really outside of the realm of history here, but it's such interesting stuff. I kind of want to talk about it. There's also sort of ritual connotations with that, that perhaps people were performing this operation with potentially religious uh, purposes in mind. Interesting. I mean, a lot of this is speculation by right. anthropologists uh, and the like, but it's possible that people were looking at this as a basically opening your mind to the divine. But I mean, again, a lot of this is, is very strong speculation. We mm-hmm. really can't know uh, without having the primary sources from these people themselves. But what we do know without any doubts is that people perform trepanation. They cut into people's skulls all the way through people's skulls, leaving a hole while they were alive. They survived the operations and went on to live a significant enough uh, amount of time afterwards for the, the wounds in the skull to somewhat heal themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think it's remarkable that they were doing this stuff without the benefits of anesthesia, that they were doing this without, blood flow management because i mean the scalp is the scalp is is terrible for for bleeding you you cut into the scalp and it just goes like crazy and there's really no way to stop that bleeding short of like cauterization because it's these little tiny yeah. blood vessels right like mm-hmm. so so there's nothing there that you can easily stop the bleeding so these people would have been awake and there would have been guys drilling or scraping at their skull I, I I don't know. I can't I can't imagine a yeah. situation in which that's preferable to whatever you're going through. But yeah. lots of people chose that or had it thrust upon them, as the case may be, I suppose. <laughs> Most of the other historical surgeries that we're talking about are going to be things like amputation, mm-hmm. um, which is usually the result of an accident or a battle wound because they knew, well, they didn't know what gangrene was but they knew what it looked like and they knew that it spread so mm-hmm. sometimes if a if a wound is mutilated badly enough or if it's infected badly enough they knew that it was better to at least try amputating and save the rest of the person even knowing that it was likely to be a fatal operation sometimes it was uh successful and a slim chance is better than no chance so yeah. people would take that fair enough again imagining the agony is is basically unthinkable (laughs) things like setting bones were fairly common they figured out that you need you needed to have the bone back where it needs to be and supported in order for it to heal properly Mm -hmm. removing tumors was fairly common especially i I mean when they're talking about moving removing tumors they're talking about big obvious you know surface growths lancing infected blisters was fairly common um they knew that you needed to get that out whatever it was again they weren't really sure what it was but uh they knew that it was better not to leave it in the body and uh yeah occasional ritual what you would call plastic surgery probably the the most um well-known example being a circumcision i mean all of this stuff again is is performed without any anesthesia any uh blood control any like any oh, of man. this stuff people were going through it you know the plastic surgery the, the cosmetic surgery would be often framed as sort of a, um, a rite of passage because it is so difficult to subject yourself to. Mm-hmm. Um, but people have been performing all of these things for so long that we don't really have records of like where they really start. So maybe the best place to get, get into next is stuff that we do have records about because that's kind of what we're about here. <laughs> the Egyptians were relatively advanced surgically. Part of that came from uh, the fact that they ritually performed autopsies on their uh, their dead i mean they were pulling organs out of the body right and that gives you a pretty good working knowledge of where everything Anatomy is and yeah, yeah exactly 
And so they were actually fairly casual about it in, in life or death situations. They were fairly well-versed in what they needed to be doing. And I, I mean, again, we're, we're not talking about some of the more major surgeries that you would think of today, but any of these uh, dealing with wounds, amputations, uh, swelling of the brain, stuff like that, they were fairly good at dealing with. The one downside with the Egyptians was that we're not exactly sure where the humors system started, but the Egyptians were heavy into it. Really? Um, yeah, it's 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 very ancient, probably originated in Mesopotamia, if not earlier. It's fascinating to think that the humor system lasted as long as it did in that it reaches basically from the beginning of recorded history up until about two centuries ago. Yeah. <laughs> For those not familiar, the, the idea of the humor system of, of medicine is that there are these four vital fluids in the human body. It's, it's um, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. And a healthy person has all four of these fluids in balance and that all illnesses are caused by an imbalance of these fluids and that based on the symptoms of these uh, diseases you could determine which fluid was either in abundance or lacking and then you'd go about treating it by either removing some of that substance or indirectly controlling uh, the amount of substance through diet or through herbal medication or purging such as as uh, sweating or laxatives things like that and you try to bring all of this back into uh, balance but the most common surgical treatment for any of these ailments under the system was bloodletting and that is a surgical procedure you're you're medically cutting someone open and letting them bleed usually till they passed out um and going well i guess they don't have as much blood now they're probably better they're good now <laughs> man bloodletting has claimed so many lives over history like it's it's amazing there yeah. are very famous very important people that have died of bloodletting because they were sick with something else and their doctors didn't know what else to do that's so sad yeah yeah it is i i heard somebody say one time that their philosophy on being sad about people dying in history was that they would have been dead by now anyways. <laughs> so they're not going to well, worry too much. that might be true. <laughs> they're not going to worry too much about somebody who died prematurely 500 years ago. They wouldn't be around anyways. Oh, I don't know. I, I always just thought that was really funny. I yeah. Mean, I, there are a lot of cases where I would argue. I mean, for example, someone like Mozart, where... They probably yeah. would have done a lot of uh, good in their lives if they hadn't died so early. That's very true. It would be a good example of an exception. But <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, in, in general, probably best not to get too broken up about some of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 uh, it's sad that they didn't have the tools that we have at our disposal, but I'm sure in 200 years, people are going to look back at us and say the same thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, that's how progress goes. Surgery in India was actually surprisingly, I shouldn't say surprisingly, I always say stuff like that about, you know, Indian, um, Chinese, uh, African history because not, not because I, I, I'm surprised that there's any advances there, but just because I have no idea what's going on there. I, I need to do some significant, uh, patching of holes in my education in those areas. <laughs> so I, I need to be careful there. I'm not, I'm not surprised that there's, uh, advanced stuff in those, in those regions of the world. In fact, I, I kind of expect it, but I just had no idea, but there's been uh, there's been evidence of uh, dental surgery going back uh, over nine thousand years in India. Oh wow! Uh, drill, drilling out obsessed uh, to, uh, teeth, things like that. One of the earliest surgeons, like as a, as an individual that I had or that I found information on, was uh, a man named Sarushta from 
uh, from about 600 BCE, who was uh, an Indian surgeon or a, a healer. Um, he worked in a number of places, but but he he made a number of advances in surgery that were really interesting, and wrote, he's the author of one of the earliest surgical texts uh, that's known. And I, I mean, he did a number of procedures that we've already kind of talked about. He talked about setting bones and things like that. But he's also actually the earliest example of uh, rhinoplasty, so like really? fixing noses. So wow. there, there was there was evidence in his uh, in his writings that he actually used what's called autografted skin, so skin taken from one area of the body moved to another. Mm-hmm. So he used skin from uh, the the uh, inner thigh of a man who had lost his nose to try and like reconstruct the nose. Wow. With I imagine not great success, but I mean, that's exactly how you would do something yeah. now. Like it's it's the exact technique that you would use now, which yes. is really, really fascinating. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. And then I think about the guy taking a knife to guys in your thigh yeah. <laughs> to, to harvest some skin. This then, might hurt a bit. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I, I need to stop talking about how excruciating it is every single time I mention a procedure. <laughs> that's just a running theme throughout this entire show. But... Yeah, I mean, he was doing stuff that I would have thought is pretty recent. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I always think of things like that in more of a cosmetic sense than as a uh, reconstructive yeah. thing. I mean, people lose noses in ways and, and you know, to, to reconstruct that after an accident isn't the same as someone who isn't happy with the shape of their nose and wants to get it redone for their 18th birthday. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. It's, it's a completely it's different It's a totally thing. different scenario. But he was definitely looking at that reconstructive side of things, you know, 2,600 years ago. That's is, really crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely insane. We'll keep moving ahead a little bit because I want to keep this a, a bit of a survey rather than focusing on every single one of these. But... Uh, about 100 years later, 500 BCE, we get to uh, Hippocrates in Greece, who is quite possibly the most famous ancient doctor. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's it's definitely up there, but people have heard of the Hippocratic Oath, yeah. um, which he did not write, but was named after him. You know, pe- people have definitely heard of this guy. He mostly worked with what we would consider internal medicine. So he was all about making treatments as gentle as possible on the patient, Hmm. mostly about keeping wounds clean with like clean water and nothing else. He didn't like packing a whole bunch of stuff on there Mm -hmm. to try and heal it up. Occasionally uh, boiled wine to clean things out. But most of his cures involved fairly gentle kind of uh, nutritional uh, solutions to problems. Hmm. He did do certain surgeries, though. There's evidence, actually, that he performed some uh, chest surgeries for, like, draining fluid that gets, okay. like, in, into the chest cavity. Right. If you get fluid into the chest cavity, you can have problems breathing, right? Mm-hmm. So he actually used, again, what is essentially what we would do now, although in a much more crude way and with much worse tools, used a, uh, a small lead pipe to puncture the chest cavity and drain fluid out of a, a patient's mm. uh, chest cavity to, to relieve the pressure on the lungs, mm-hmm. which again, 2,500 years ago, like they know yeah. enough to pull something like that off, which is, you know, pretty impressive. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, by now in the, in the Greek world, in the Hellenic world, there's already evidence that, you know, the the medicine that they're using on the battlefield, which again, we're going to keep coming back to the battlefield because war, you're going to see a lot more wounds than just kind of peacetime working as a, you know, a quiet country doctor. <laughs> and people get a lot more practice That's with, true. with yeah. wounds. And because they get more practice, they can much more quickly learn what works well and what doesn't mm-hmm. because you essentially 
create a medical trial artificially. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 kind of grim to consider, but that's where you're going to see a lot of the advances in in surgical techniques is during wartime. But by the time that the uh, the Odyssey and the Iliad had been written by Homer, which is you know again before Hippocrates here, there there were descriptions in uh, the Iliad of you know removing arrows from from soldiers, cleaning out the wound with again boiled wine, applying a, a salve and and bandaging it with wool bandages, which. I mean, that's just kind of what you do. That's yeah. that's about right. Yeah, that's pretty good job. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, it's it's I don't know. It's easy to think of people over two thousand years ago and kind of discount the amount of uh, practical knowledge they have about stuff like this. No, nope, the Greeks had it covered. They were doing pretty well, <laughs> and so things have been going fairly well in terms of like learning surgical techniques, in terms of like uh, improving our knowledge, and then you kind of run into. Roman culture sort of spreading across uh, Europe and uh, into Asia. And that ends up being a little bit of a problem for surgery specifically, because there was a a cultural social taboo against autopsy uh, in the Roman world. Uh, It was believed that the the body is sacred and that, you know, cutting it up after death is offensive. Mm -hmm. There's also a bit more of a practical reason to it, namely that they did believe that, you know, a, a cadaver could spread disease, which is supported by some diseases, right? But mm-hmm. there's also, you know, there, there's also kind of practical things about a, a body that make people create taboos around them, specifically the smell of them. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're living in a world that's pre-germ theory of disease and something smells that bad, you kind of create rules just, to separate yeah, yourself from it, right? From it, yeah. Because it just intuitively feels like it's bad for you. And so between the religious reasons and the sort of practical reasons, uh, people weren't really allowed to study the human body in the same detail that mm-hmm. they had been allowed to in Egypt, in uh, the Greek world, things like that. And what's more, the way that the, the Romans took over these places and sort of created their own uh, knowledge bases, a lot of times this... Uh, knowledge was either uh, lost completely or was sort of um, discounted in favor of newer Roman learning. So we get to a a doctor named Galen in the second century BCE. Um, Again, relatively famous. He he pioneered a lot of different uh, medical techniques. He's actually one of the earliest known uh, users of a, a ligature, which is beginning to actually solve one of our problems. A ligature is tying off a cut uh, blood vessel oh, okay um, to prevent bleeding during mm-hmm. a, during an operation hmm. which is incredibly useful <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I mean Galen was uh, we're gonna get into Galen a little bit more when we get into uh, anatomy but he wrote what ended up becoming the seminal book on anatomy in the West for the next oh 1600 years or wow. so. Galen was so well respected. I mean, this this was a this was a physician who ended up working with emperors and and the most important people in Roman society because he was just that good. Mm. Um, as well as being a prolific teacher, he had a lot of students, and his medical methods were very highly respected. What's more, his all of his work was, even though he was Roman, based in Greek medicine, which still had a reputation of being very good. Mm-hmm. The only thing is because of that ban on autopsy he tended to focus on the um humorous side 
of Greek medicine. Okay. And so a lot of his stuff is based far more on uh, Socratian philosophy and this idea of like the humor system than it is necessarily on like practical uh, surgical medicine. So then was he like prevented from certain types of exploration or research because of the belief system at the time yeah no he was absolutely not allowed to perform autopsies and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about how he got around that when Mm -hmm. we get to yeah like i was wondering if they might make like special exceptions or something for him if he was so highly respected or regarded it was such a strong social taboo that even for him it was Mm -hmm. not allowed okay um and he did find some ways around that Mm -hmm. um but again i i want to focus a little bit more on that uh, a little bit later. But, I mean, for example, most of his knowledge of the human skeleton, he had to go to Alexandria, which is in Egypt, mm-hmm. which is, you know, not as far as people maybe imagine that it is, but it's still a pretty far way to travel in, you know, the second century BC. Yeah. Or sorry, the second century CE. It's 1800 years ago, not 2200 years ago. But honestly, <laughs> even 1800 years ago, getting to Alexandria wasn't impossible. But in Alexandria, they had two human skeletons on display. These human skeletons had been people who had died of exposure in the desert and picked clean by vultures. Oh, okay. And so because it was kind of an act of the gods that they, you know, no one, no no human had any, any part in, they had decided that these could be put on display. And so Galen had to travel all the way to Alexandria to see these two skeletons set up on display and take notes from viewing these skeletons in order to learn about the human skeletal system. That sounds incredibly tedious. Very tedious. Yep. So that taboo was a very problematic thing for Western medicine, for surgical medicine specifically. Mm -hmm. Eventually, it kind of wore off. But by eventually, I mean like the Middle Ages, like the 12th, 13th century. People stopped seeing... uh, Because what, what you get even in the later Roman times and and after Rome fell in the West, there was a very literal understanding of resurrection in Christianity where uh, for the first while, people actually believed that the the bodies that they buried would literally rise again rather than sort of a a more uh, esoteric or spiritual understanding of of the afterlife. Mm -hmm. They believed that that during uh, the second coming that all... uh, faithful believers would would literally rise again from the from the grave and they would have the same bodies that they had had in life right and so to violate that is i mean it's it's a worse crime than murder at that point because you're you're not only killing somebody you're you're ruining uh, their afterlife as well because they're going to have a, a ruined uh, body when they when they rise again that, I see. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 very like it was it was very sacred to people to have a, a a clean cadaver to bury because that was what they were going to be coming back with. Right. Yeah. So eventually, you know, people developed a more uh, theological or spiritual understanding of of sort of that that resurrection, and it became a little less important to them. They began seeing bodies as more of a receptacle of the soul rather than the the literal entity that would come again, and they started getting interested in anatomy and medicine and things like that around the 13th century. But, you know, even in this whole arc, we're kind of focusing on Europe. Meanwhile, in uh, the Middle East, there's something called the Islamic Enlightenment going on. 
and centered around Baghdad, actually, there's this huge boom of intellectualism. There's uh, huge strides made in math and medicine in in all of these, what we would consider very academic fields, Mm -hmm. right? And there was a doctor called uh, Muhammad Ibn Zakariya al-Razi in the ninth century who was writing just just pages and pages, books and books on surgical procedures. Mm. Um, he was actually uh, considered the uh, the father of ophthalmology. So, okay, I mean, in the ninth century, yeah. they're working on eye stuff already. <laughs> I mean, so in the 800s, while, you know, they are just kind of working on founding the Holy Roman Empire in Europe, so it's just a bunch of Crusader knights banging around Germany... <laughs> These guys are actually working on cataract surgeries. Yeah, it's like they're already starting to develop specialties and subspecialties without really realizing it. Absolutely. Necessarily. Yep. He's also considered the father of pediatrics. He was the first to go, you know what? Maybe we should consider children as (laughs) not just mini adults when it comes to medicine. Yeah. They have specific concerns going on that are um, particular to their age. I mean, you know, the human body is different at different ages. Mm -hmm. And that seems like a almost a tautology to say out loud now, but that's kind of how medicine was practiced at that point. Maybe let off a little less blood, but he'll be fine. You know, it wasn't really considered that different. This was the first guy who said, you know what, we need to actually look into what is medically different about children as opposed to adults. So yeah, this guy is doing cataract surgery in the 8th century. That's awesome. I don't know how that works. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I I don't want to think too much about how this works. Yeah. Oh. (laughs) Oh. Well, indeed, I agree completely. So, yeah, I mean, that stuff didn't really slow down in other parts of the world. So even though Europe kind of hit the brakes for a little while, there are other places where it was, uh, you know, medical knowledge is still advancing. And of course, we kind of think of these areas as having like these hard walls between them, that there's not a whole lot of transfer of information. Not true at all. Once people started becoming more interested in in surgical arts again in, in, in Europe, these texts were being translated and disseminated throughout Europe. Of course, not having printing presses slows things down a little bit, but this knowledge wasn't being developed independently in each region. Things like this were spread around. Now, in China and India, of course, these things were still going on, but a lot of those regions tended towards uh, favoring internal medicine as much as as possible. Confucianism had also kind of slowed down surgical advancements in China, where you have a very similar attitude towards the body as being as, as the physical vessel being very sacred and therefore not to be messed with uh, if at all possible mm-hmm. so you had more of a focus on like emergency surgery so things like setting broken bones but you're not really learning a whole lot of new stuff and it's really difficult to develop new types of emergency surgeries without some sort of practice and practice really only comes from two places number one hands-on live dissection so vivisection Mm -hmm. which is what you get on the battlefield which is why they get good at stuff like amputation or number two learning things from uh dissection from from autopsies which they're not allowed to do now so you know yeah they get good at amputation at broken bones and things like that because that's what happens on the on the battlefield things like the removal of tumors not so much because they Mm -hmm. don't get practice so they don't learn how to do it better in a way that their patients survive once in a while they'll have somebody that comes along that they'll be able to give it a shot but they're going in blind yeah terrifying yeah and they'll do their best obviously but that's not really 
uh, a branch of medicine that's being focused on. Instead, uh, in India, they're focusing on oh goodness, what's their medicine? Their medical system called uh, Ayurvedic. Ayurvedic medicine, yeah, that's right, and and Chinese medicine as well, which is mm-hmm. is very focused on uh, herbal medicine and. It, both Ayurvedic and Chinese medicine folk are, are, are strangely similar to the humor system, where they're looking at keeping forces within the ba- within the body within balance, in balance. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the internal medicine side, all across Europe and Asia, even in different cultures, they've got very similar viewpoints on how to heal people. And really, it's only in the Middle East where uh, anyone's looking at surgical procedures as a as an important part of medicine rather than sort of a, a sidelined specialty where it's only used in, in the most emergency or in the most uh, in the most emergency situations. I don't <laughs> think that's the best way to put that, but in, in, in the most dire situations, really Europe kind of works its way out. Like I said earlier in the 13th century or so, but it's very slow to develop into anything uh, even close to what we would consider surgical medicine at this point, you're looking at what we would call barber surgeons. Mm. Barber surgeons were literally barbers and also did surgical operations. Like uh, as it, a side job? <laughs> well, this, the, the barber surgeon, like if you go to a barber and they're taking care of, you know, your hair and your beard and also, you know what, you've got an abscessed tooth. Can you go ahead and pop that out while you're at it? Is kind of how that's looked at is it's it's procedures that are below what a physician would consider worthy of them okay because in the middle ages and this comes from uh, medicine as being something that was kind of curated by the church after the fall of rome medicine was very uh academic Mm -hmm. so doctors weren't necessarily people who are going around hands-on helping people with uh maladies they were people who were closer to philosophers than healers because remember that the humor system is based on this philosophy of a balance within the body right and so a lot of the treatments are are uh based more on like arguments of what should work under this made-up system than any like practical experience Mm -hmm. and so something like you know uh cutting off a, a tumor or removing an abscessed tooth uh, or something like that is is not really something that someone tied up in academia is going to see themselves as waste their time on basically yeah (laughs) which is kind of a rough way of putting it but that's how they saw themselves and so you needed somebody to do it and if you weren't going to do it at home the person that you paid to look after your body in other ways you know just general body maintenance is the barber surgeon and it actually came out of uh, people being trained at monasteries as, you know, like monks have to maintain a tonsure, which is the, the shaved part of their, mm-hmm. their head on top. Mm-hmm. Um, they had somebody that they had to train as a barber there anyways. They also had people that were working in medicine, but did not want to actually treat people hands on. Mm-hmm. So they figured, hey, this guy is learning how to be a barber. We might as well show him how to do a couple of basic surgical procedures while we're at it. And when patients come in and... You know, they clearly need that rotten tooth pulled, but we don't feel like doing it. We're going to send him over to the barber and he can just take care of it for us. So we don't have okay. to waste our time. And this kind of spread into a larger tradition, right? It wasn't really until the 16th century that like physicians started looking at surgery as something under their under their responsibility, I guess you could say. Really, probably the, the biggest turning point in terms of an individual was uh, a a doctor named uh, Ambroise Paré, who in 1530 invented a new way of dealing with gunshot wounds. 
wounds. Gunshot wounds are weird compared to something like, say, an arrow, for example, because Mm -hmm. arrows are, uh, they they cut, right? Yeah. They're cutting through. They're similar to like a knife wound. They, yes, they puncture, but they cut first. A gunshot wound, uh, a bullet is going so fast and it's so broad that it'll push stuff into the wound. And so they get infected really easily. In fact, when guns first started coming out, people actually thought that the bullets were poison. There was something about them that was poisonous, when in reality, it was just really easy to get infected from them. Interesting. And so um, Paré worked on gunshot wounds mainly. And so he, he he was a battlefield physician, but the original treatment for a gunshot wound was to pour boiling oil into it because that would kill they 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 saw it as getting the poison out but it would cauterize the wound so it would stop bleeding Mm -hmm. Uh, it would kill any microbes that are in there and quite possibly kill the patient because of inflammation (laughs) trauma stress on the body but again it's one of those like well you've got a chance at surviving this way or you're probably going to die if we don't do it so yeah here we go this kind of thing um, Paré realized that you could take egg yolk, turpentine, and rose oil and use that to clean out the wound and it would stop it from getting infected. Wow. That sounds much more pleasant. Turpentine. <laughs> oh. But I mean, you know, the rose oil helps with the smell. Oh, yeah. It's fine. You'll smell great. You'll and, smell and like a botanical garden and you might even live. <laughs> <laughs> turpentine, you know, it's, it's similar to um, alcohol in that it'll, you know, it, it breaks down the the uh, cellular structure of any microbes, it's pretty good at cleaning stuff out. Mm -hmm. It's not a bad uh, instinct. Um, And he spent the rest of his life basically perfecting these uh, battlefield wound methods. And he he lived another, uh, you know, I mean, he lived till he was 80, which is impressive. He spent Mm -hmm. nearly 60 years working on battlefield medicine. He also invented new uh, ligation techniques. So tying off the the blood vessels to make sure that no one bled out during Mm -hmm. these procedures which again is a huge lifesaver. You want to stop that blood flow because we are nowhere near the point where we're putting new blood into somebody. Yeah. What's in you is what you got. <laughs> Hang on to it. Yeah. He also worked on amputation techniques, which is is really traumatic and it's very difficult to do properly, but sometimes it's just better than the op- the, the other alternatives. So I think we're going to leave things with Paré because after Paré, we start getting into what you would call more like modern... Um, surgical techniques and a lot of that is going to come out of those other problems that we have to solve uh, knowledge of anatomy the anesthesia uh, and the and just general sanitation within medicine mm-hmm. so uh, i think we'll take a quick break right there and we'll be right back all right we're back on hi 101 here with yumiko hutchenruther hi hi First thing that I want to get into is our knowledge of anatomy, because if you're going to cut into somebody, better know what you're cutting. Sounds good. It's probably probably a good place to start. Probably rational. Funny thing there is that it's, uh, it's something that kind of went unanalyzed for a very long time. <laughs> there was this interesting tendency, in especially in the Middle Ages, to look on the knowledge that we had gained during the classical period, so during the, the time of the Greeks and Romans, mm-hmm. as being sort of this pinnacle of human society. And that really we had just kind of lost all of this stuff in the ensuing time. In fact, that's where we get the term medieval or Middle Ages, right. is that during the Renaissance, which means rebirth, 
people saw themselves as finally reaching, well, and we're talking about Europe specifically here, of course, people saw themselves as finally reaching a level that was comparable to what we had had during the Greek and Roman eras and the therefore Renaissance rebirth. And that the middle ages, all the time in between was just this, you know, if you took all of humanity and divided up into three ages, there's the good times when it's classical. <laughs> there's all this terrible junk in the middle. That's the middle ages. And then the rebirth. And we're finally back to where we started. Right. This is a gross oversimplification of the way that human society progressed, even in Europe. I think there's this this fallacy that gets thrown around a lot that we didn't gain anything during uh, what used to be called the Dark Ages, mm-hmm. which is a terrible name for it. <laughs> Please never call it the Dark Ages. It's not. It's not good. Have you ever seen? You might not have seen it. That's okay. It's infamous in history circles. It's known as the Graph, and I'll put a link in the in the comments. But basically, someone has taken a graph, like it's like a it's like a line graph, right? And it's a uh, on the bottom is years and on on the x-axis is years and on the y-axis is amount of scientific knowledge or something very like vague like that which is impossible to measure right yeah it's it's completely it's it's complete utter nonsense (laughs) and so on the years it's and it's got like marked out like here's where the romans were here's where the greeks were all of this stuff right and so it's going up and up and up and then it's like fall of rome and the 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 graph goes back down mm-hmm. and stays flat and it's like here's the dark ages and then it starts going back up again at i don't think it's even the renaissance i think it's at uh uh in 1700 with like the this the scientific revolution right and it starts going up and it like shows where we are now and i don't know how they got any of these measurements <laughs> that's because this whole thing is just it's infuriating yeah but what they've also done on this graph is taken and like put a dotted line of like how the graph should have gone if the dark ages hadn't happened, which I think the graph may blame specifically on the church. Mm -hmm. It's a very infuriating graph. There's a lot of things that make me really angry about this (laughs) graph, but it's bad. It's bad and it's wrong. And the problem or the reason that it's so infuriating is that it's, I think, a very common uh, opinion of the progression of history, especially in Europe, where somehow we just lost all of this knowledge which no we didn't we we um you know the 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 curation of all of this knowledge was actually um carried out by the church they were the ones that retained all of this knowledge for us there was um there was significant progress made by scholars who were funded by the church like there's it's it's a lot more complicated than people are making it out to be and yeah don't call it the dark ages it wasn't backwards <laughs> it, we didn't decline in any way yeah, anyways, I'm I'm off on a tangent about something that annoys me, and that's never a good thing. But uh, the point of all of this is that even though we didn't necessarily decline, even during uh, the Middle Ages, people's opinions of the Classical Age was that it was somehow better than the lives that they were leading at that point in time, especially when looking at famous scholars. So, I mean, on the philosophy side, you're looking at, you know, the three big Greek uh, philosophers... Socrates, uh, Plato, and Aristotle. Um, those any, anything that those guys said was taken as like gospel truth. Mm-hmm. Arguing against something that had been written by one of those three philosophers would get you locked up as a crazy person because they were right. Yeah, and it was just unassailable, right? The same thing went for doctors. 
especially Galen. Galen had been, we, we talked about him in the first section where Galen had been this, uh, this healer who famously had treated emperors and, and, and uh, governors and all of these very important people, but had also created all of these works about medicine and about surgery and healing. And every doctor read Galen and mm-hmm. Galen was right. And they treated people based on Galen's works. The problem is, as we talked about in that first section, Galen never really gained a full understanding of human anatomy because he wasn't allowed to do dissections. Mm-hmm. And obviously a guy like Galen isn't satisfied with not doing dissections. He needs to know what's yeah. going on. He's curious, obviously, right? And so, yeah, he learned as much as he could when he could for like when he had opportunities to do so. I mean, if somebody gets cut open, he's probably going to poke around in there a little bit. Mm-hmm. But that's not going to give you a a true understanding of anatomy, right? It's not enough. And so Galen, realizing this, but also respecting the societal ban on um, dissection, he would take uh, macaques and he would dissect those because he figured macaques as monkeys, they look pretty much like people. Mm -hmm. They're probably basically the same inside. Basically. And he based all of his human medical knowledge on dissections of monkeys. Oh, boy. They look pretty similar on the outside. They're not the same on the inside. (laughs) Oh, no. They're really not. And so all of this stuff that he wrote, I I mean, the stuff about medicine was already wrong because it was already based on the, it was all based on the humors, right? Mm -hmm. The stuff that was surgical in nature was all about monkey surgery because he couldn't really get a good look inside a person. So maybe useful for a primatologist, but not... Which was, Yeah, exactly. Which wasn't even a thing people. back then. Yeah. But like, why would you operate on a person based on monkey details? <laughs> yeah. It doesn't work too well. <laughs> but like, he doesn't put that in any of his work. Scalin no. doesn't say, by the way, I got this info from a monkey. Yeah. Like, just, you know, careful. It's probably fine. He wrote it all as if it was the absolute truth. And this kind of goes back to that understanding of medicine as a rather like philosophical discipline where a lot of the stuff is uh, at this period in time is talked about the way it should be in a logical system rather than how it necessarily is. Mm -hmm. And if you ever do anything even remotely related to biology, you understand that biology it does not care about logic at all there's nothing logical about biology it's uh yeah anything goes and it's never quite how you expect it and so galen's got a lot of really like fundamental problems in his uh understanding of anatomy um that weren't cleared up for over a thousand years i mean galen believed the mandible like the the lower Mm -hmm. jawbone was actually in two pieces because the structure was similar to, uh, I, he actually based it on the way that a dog's uh, mandible is separated. Mm. Um, and he believed that the structure at the bottom of a, like at, at the human chin, mm-hmm. resembled um, the structure in a dog's mandible, hmm. just based on like out, outer appearance, right? Because right. you know how people get like the, the cleft chin? Yeah. He believed that that cleft that chin was- like was... a separation line or something. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And he couldn't really cut open a person to check their- uh, their chin to confirm or deny this. And so this was just a, a misconception that was printed <laughs> as the truth. So people thought that the jaw was in two pieces. And I know that doesn't seem like that big a deal really, but like 
something that simple should definitely be covered in what becomes like the main medical text of the next thousand years. Mm -hmm. Galen believed that men had more teeth than women. That one always made me laugh because (laughs) I feel like that could have been checked even on a live person. Yeah. Do you know why? Well, I mean, men are obviously the superior. Oh, no, it had nothing to do with that. (laughs) They just had more heat in their bodies. Oh, and, uh, and heat generates teeth? Yeah. Okay. No, you got it. That's right. <laughs> That's the problem with this old medicine is that like that you'll see like these these very like logically laid out arguments for why things are, are the way they are. And they're all laid out in the Socratian method, which is like there's a question and then an answer to it. Mm-hmm. And then that answer leads to like a next question. And then there'll be an answer to that as well. And it's it's good classical philosophy uh it's bad medicine like you think they'd be able to figure that one out yeah really easily oh no and this was the text that all western medicine was based on oh no oh no indeed so like yeah that's the thing about i mean monkeys aren't that far off physiologically from humans there's there there are differences Mm -hmm. don't get me wrong but like you can't just look at something on the outside and just assume that on the inside they're different. Like animals get crazy in there sometimes. <laughs> like cows with their all the all the different stomachs and the stuff. Stomachs, yeah. What's up with that? <laughs> they look a lot like horses. Horses don't have that going on. Yeah. It, yeah, you can't just assume the monkeys are just like humans on the inside. Come on, Galen. <laughs> get it together, man. <laughs> get it together. But yeah, that, I mean, even when people got more curious about surgical procedures, even when they were like less squeamish about autopsies, mm-hmm. it was still so taboo to question Galen that a lot of times these autopsies weren't done with the purpose of finding holes in what Galen had written. Um, they were often done with the express purpose of proving Galen correct because right. it was seen more it was seen as more important to like confirm the beliefs that were already in place. Than it was to learn new things, which is, yeah, it, it took a while to kind of get over that attitude towards classical thinkers. So even while they're assuming that Galen is still correct, you get things going on like public autopsies because people are really curious. I mean, people mm-hmm. are always morbidly curious about really creepy things. Oh, yeah. It's it's just part of human nature. And this is one of the reasons, by the way, I love doing topics like this, the, <laughs> the more social stuff, because sometimes when you get into sort of political topics, it's kind of un- it's kind of difficult to understand people's motivations because they're living under an entirely different political system. Mm-hmm. But political systems don't get in very good touch with people as individuals. Whereas these these social topics, you kind of get a sense of like how similar people are throughout all of history. And yeah. like just people are people and they have similar reactions to things and feelings about things. And if you today put up a sign and we're like, guess what? Cutting up a dead body, pay five bucks, come see it. <laughs> you know how many people would come? You know, how fast, you know how fast they would fill seats? Yeah. So fast. Yeah. And everyone would just be like, oh, this is gross. I don't know why I'm watching it. And then they would like lean in further <laughs> be like, this is this is awesome. <laughs> People love stuff like this. So there was this uh, Italian physician, uh, Mondino Deliuzzi, who carries out the first recorded public autopsy in uh, Bologna. And people just loved watching this stuff because they were learning so much. But they just like it wasn't even about medical knowledge necessarily. It's like 
there's so much knowledge available to us in our day-to-day, like right now, that it's kind of like, if I want to see what's inside a human body, I can jump on the internet, type in what's inside a human body, (laughs) and like get more pictures than I can look at in an entire day. And I'll come away knowing more than all of these people reading Galen's texts, right? Because we just have all of that information available to us. And it's great. If you've never seen what a person looks like on the inside... And, so, and and this Deliuzzi comes up and he's like, yeah, I, I'll show you. Come on, come on down. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, people are there. They're, they're curious. They want to know about the world around them. And this yeah. is this is a really easy way to learn that. It's hands on and it's 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 practical. It's interesting. People were just loving it. There is still a taboo a little bit on who these autopsies are performed on. Less because of sort of top down imposed uh, taboo about who's being um, dissected and more of a bottom-up problem of it's all well and good to say that for science we should be able to perform uh, dissections on human beings but when it comes down to your loved one has passed away what do you want done with their body mm-hmm. all of a sudden a lot less people are interested in having uh, an autopsy performed when they knew the person and they they have yeah. their own traditional ideas of what they want to happen to the body after death mm-hmm. right and and it that's that's a problem that continues to this day I mean, yeah for sure uh, even even things like uh organ donation mm-hmm. which is you know incredibly important uh, a lot of people are very squeamish about organ donation and and mm-hmm. i mean you know you can't you can't force people into organ donation that's that's completely wrong it uh violates a lot of sort of personal rights but when you look at the the percentage rates of people who are willing to be organ donors it's it's you know people are still very touchy about what happens to them after they die and people are very touchy about what happens to their loved ones after they die uh that hasn't changed at all that's another way that people are very very similar so they kind of went well how do we how do we solve this who gets who gets dissected Mm -hmm. and the easy answer is okay perfect any criminals that are executed by the state Perfect. <laughs> can be used as as um, as subjects for these autopsies. The problem is that they decided to they decided to kind of put in place that these are the only people that could be used. So in the 13th century, if you wanted your own body to be do- uh, donated for this reason, you couldn't have that happen unless maybe you got yourself executed by the state, I guess. Right. I just thought of that right now. Um, no, you couldn't just as a private individual donate your own body to science. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, again, this is a different time in terms yeah. of like what people or how people considered criminals and their place within society. They saw them as entirely distinct, entirely separate. It's hard to think of them as just like actual individuals. And mm-hmm. they're thought of more as like a social class. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little easier to put rules like that on kind of an outgroup than it is on actual individuals. How about like if there was a homeless person on the street who had passed away, would they be allowed to uh, perform autopsies on them? Or does it strictly have to be criminal? Yes. Uh, well, I mean, the rules vary, uh, of course, by like where we're talking and when we're talking. Mm-hmm. But it, I did find it ex- uh, expanded to unclaimed bodies or uh, okay. also uh, wards of the state. So somebody who was, for example, in a men- mental institution that had no family that was willing to claim the body after they died right. um, or in jail or an orphan that had died. Anyone who didn't have their body claimed right. could be uh, used for these purposes. Okay. It's still a fairly limited number of people. But it gives them something to draw on. Mm-hmm. And it's better than macaques. So yep. 
you know, there's that going for them. <laughs> At least it's not a monkey. Yeah. And one thing that I found really interesting, actually, is if you committed a crime, uh, you could actually be sentenced to anatomization. Really? So not only would you be killed, but they let you know before they executed you <laughs> that we are going to chop up your body for science. Which, I, I don't know. I, I, I find that interesting that they could, like, layer that on as part of the punishment. Yeah. Um, which I, I suppose is psychologically distressing. Like, it's kind of like, after you're dead, we're going to kill you some more. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, it's not like they're, you know, it's not like it's the first time somebody had been sentenced to dismemberment after death as part mm-hmm. of their sentence. I mean, you get things like being drawn and quartered, right? Where yeah. you're basically yanked apart by four horses. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's disrespect on top of execution is what it is. But I find it interesting that the sentiment here is that you're so worthless that we're not even going to give you a proper burial after your execution. Yeah. We're going to let some doctor cut you up in front of an audience. And ironically, these criminals end up being kind of a gift to the future of science and absolutely. anatomy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And it's it's almost unfortunate that it becomes a, a part of their sentence as something used to deter people from crime. Yeah. Um, but I mean, again, social norms have only somewhat recently come around to the point where autopsy or dissection is allowed at all to encourage people that this is a good thing, that it's a, a helpful thing to society as a whole is that's that's a pretty big ask for these people to, to yeah. kind of have them uh, yeah. agree to that. But you're you're absolutely right. It was it was such a huge help to us medically, and and everyone benefited from doctors being able to have this hands-on knowledge about the human body because you can't cure what you don't understand. Or, I mean, sometimes you can, but usually that's as much out of trial and error or luck as it is about a deeper understanding of mm-hmm. the discipline as a whole. Mm-hmm. So, even with you know, kind of working through these dissections publicly, privately, for educational purposes, what have you. It took a while before people were actually questioning Galen on some of the stuff he wrote about the body. Because in a lot of ways, again, like I said, the the anatomy is similar enough that you're going to see very similar things within, you know, within the body. I mean, a stomach is a stomach, a liver is a liver. Mm-hmm. Um, you're still going to find the same things. It doesn't mean that physiologically they're performing the exact same functions that they're as important that they work in the same ways but you know people were kind of it was close enough that no one was questioning galen until you get to the 16th century so the 1500s uh, a doctor named uh andreas vesselius and this is a thing by the way in uh, uh around the the 16th 17th 18th centuries a lot of doctors had their names latinized interesting um because it sounds prestigious and fancy mm-hmm. and and you if you're going to be a doctor you want people to know that you're a doctor right there's a lot of there's always a lot of social prestige that goes with being a, a doctor right yeah and so i i believe andreas vesselius he was he was belgian actually so it was andre something or other it was it was a, a like a dutch name okay um but he had it latinized to andreas vesselius and he's generally known as vesselius mm. he wrote a treatise uh, a treatise criticizing uh galen's anatomy which was just earth shattering for for doctors at this point in time yeah. um he basically had been digging through galen's works and in 1541 he discovered the fact that he had in fact been been using macaques for all of this ah. physiological information and and people hadn't 
known this. It had been completely lost. So this guy comes along and finds out that he's been, you know, working with information from monkeys all this time and kind of went, hey, uh, guys, <laughs> problem. Uh, you, you should maybe come look at this. <laughs> and the reaction from the medical community was massive backlash. Don't criticize Galen. What are you doing? Oh, man. Yeah, and this is going to be a common theme, actually. People don't like questioning the establishment before, uh, well, I was going to say before modern times, but even that's not true. Things keep getting kept in the in the most conservative form possible in medicine for, for a very long time here. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he wrote books. He, he started working on his own anatomy research and the whole time was facing criticism from his peers. But basically, he threw Galen out. He said, this is this is useless. Why are we even bothering to look at this? That's bold. And all of his, um, all of the doctors who worked under him, he refused to let them read Galen. He started from scratch and he made sure, and this is the other big difference. Up until now, these dissections are t- being done in sort of this uh, observer manner, like the Deliuzzi, where you walk in, you're in an, an operating theater and it's mm-hmm. literally a theater yeah. because one guy is doing this this autopsy and he's he's showing people stuff and like check this out you know here's 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 a spleen Mm -hmm. it's it i pulled it from right here and everyone kind of applauds politely i'm sure and uh i don't know how these things go ah. i know nothing about (laughs) i'm talking a lot about medicine today i know very little about medicine (laughs) i'm good at reading about stuff and learning about stuff i'm probably making horrible mistakes which is why i keep things so general but yeah i I mean i don't know how these operating theaters would have worked at this point in time other than that they were more theater than they were necessarily learning experiences vesalius wanted his students like in there and actually doing the the dissections themselves touching the organs learning like where their placement was in the body learning what it feels like to cut somebody. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, these are important lessons for a doctor. And this is something that going through medical school now is absolutely required. You have to touch a cadaver. You have to learn about these things mm-hmm. before you can be practicing this stuff on a living person because a living person is too important to just kind of mess around with. Mm-hmm. You've got to learn it first. And so Vesalius is really the one that kind of pioneers this hands-on learning of, of anatomy. And as well as this sort of uh, denial of of Galen's work, which has been going strong for 1,300 years at this point, it was a bold revolution. But he was absolutely right, as we now know. It just took other doctors a long time to come around to this stuff. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it, I think, comes down to reputation. I'm, I'm sure you've run into a lot of guys like this through psychology, right? Where psychologists will cling to stuff that has been clearly proven yeah. incorrect because, you know, they're maybe 60 years old. They've got a couple years left in their career. <laughs> they don't want to spend it, you know, dealing with the fact that everything that they worked for for the past 40 years of their career has just been proven incorrect. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's easier to kind of go down swinging than it is to accept the new reality of yeah. um you know, establish medical knowledge. And so sometimes it almost takes a generation for things to catch up Mm -hmm. because there's so much of the old guard that's kind of hanging on to what they knew before. And so you've got these gentleman doctors that are kind of refusing to admit that Galen might have been wrong because that would admit that they've been practicing medicine wrong their entire careers. Yeah. There's a lot of ego tied up in it. Oh, yeah, for sure. 
there was a doctor named John Hunter in Scotland in the 18th century that kind of follows in uh, Vesalius's footsteps going like, okay, yeah, we can't really hang on to that old stuff. He spent his career collecting specimens, uh, medical specimens, both human and animal, ended up collecting over 14,000 specimens over his life and donated the entire thing to the Royal Society. Um, But his whole point was in order to learn as much as possible about these organs, about these systems, we need to have more than just like one example of what it is, what it does. Yeah, for sure. And so he spent his time looking at not only how it works in people, but how it also works in other uh, other creatures and animals and trying to figure out what the commonalities are, trying to figure out what the differences between humans and other animals uh, tells us about human anatomy. Because mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to figure out I don't know, something like the endocrine system. Yeah. When it's the 1700s and (laughs) you don't know what you're doing and have never heard of germs. Mm -hmm. So looking at what systems exist in us, but not in other animals, and then looking at the difference between us and those animals might be able to give us some information about what that system does and uh, why it's important, things like that. And so, yeah, he just spent all of this time cataloging, uh, describing, uh, observing all of these systems and preserving them for the future. And I mean, in some ways, it was kind of a useless endeavor. It's not that helpful to catalog all of this stuff in a vacuum in a non-working way because so many of these systems work together in such mm-hmm. complex manners. But the point of, of John Hunter and, and the fact that he was so well regarded and accepted within the British Royal Society is that he didn't take anything for granted. He wouldn't just go back to these people and assume that they had gotten it right. He wanted to make sure in a scientific manner, and that's that's the key here. He's actually doing, you know, following the scientific method, doing yeah. experiments to figure this stuff out and cataloging the entire entirety of the experiment and not just writing about conclusions that he's made. And that was looked on as like a worthy endeavor that we should be looking into this stuff. We should be examining this stuff and we don't know everything already. We need to actually actively learn about it Mm -hmm. in order to get better at medicine. And so you get this entire change over not even an entire century from, you know, Vesalius being completely ignored pushed aside in the establishment to john hunter who's accepted who's who's celebrated by the royal society for his work on anatomy and he's really he's really considered the first scientific surgeon right mm-hmm. so he's actually doing this work and and cataloging it in a, a scientific medicine uh, medical way whereas before there was a lot of just kind of going in there and seeing what happens <laughs> yeah all of this work led to a massive demand for cadavers for medical schools and we get into a bit of a tight spot with this change to medical students needing hands-on work versus just kind of observing Mm -hmm. uh, dissections from afar, which is that medical schools started running into a bit of a deficit of cadavers Mm. where they were looking for bodies because there's only so many executed criminals a year. Yeah. And there's a lot of doctors coming up and they all need to learn this stuff. Yeah. And just as kind of a kind of an aside on all of this stuff, you ran into a bit of a body snatching situation <laughs> in the early 1800s where the medical schools needed these bodies yeah. and were willing to sometimes work with grave robbers, sometimes not ask too many questions about where <laughs> bodies came from. Yeah. Uh, 
it got real shady. And I mean, that's just, you know, I don't, not that I want to forgive it, but it was, it was a function of the restrictions that were in place about who could be used as a cadaver for a medical school, right? Mm-hmm. And in Britain, up until this point, it was only executed uh, criminals. And I, I mean, a lot of this, a lot of these problems we're, we're talking about now happened in Britain. Basically, and, and you get really interesting things happening in graveyards around this point in time mm-hmm. where families would actually stand guard at the grave sites oh. for usually about five days after the corpse had been buried because at that point, some of the Pope's mortem processes had started setting in and the body was no longer good to anyone as a medical cadaver yeah and so they would post people there 24 7 for like nearly a week straight to make sure that the body was no longer a candidate for grave robbing you'd also see there's there's a picture that floats around the internet every once in a while of like a um they usually call it like an anti-zombie device or something like that but they would actually take steel cages and they would bolt it down over the grave. Oh, wow. They would lay concrete and they would bolt this cage over the grave so it would be virtually impossible to to dig through. Mm-hmm. And then you just have somebody kind of walking the, the graveyard at all times. A gravekeeper is always there. It's just a matter yeah. of how often he can get around the entirety of the grave site, right? Yeah. So make it so hard to get into the grave that you could never do it before somebody caught you, basically. Mm-hmm. And those cages weren't left on forever. They were... You basically rented them, actually, okay, um, to serve a similar function as as guarding the grave site. Yeah, but yeah, people would dig up freshly buried graves, and they weren't looking to. Uh, it, it wasn't grave robbing of the traditional kind, where usually you're looking for any jewelry that they were buried with, any other you know valuables that they were buried with. They were mm-hmm. looking for the body itself to sell to medical schools, yeah, who would pay a fee for these these fresh bodies because they needed something to teach their students with. Mm-hmm. This. Most famously led to the Burke and Hare murders. William Burke and William Hare were two men who were working with a medical school and basically got tired of robbing the graves themselves and decided to cut out the middleman, stop waiting for people to die and murdering them in in alleyways (laughs) and then taking them to the to the medical school. Being like, got another one for you. (laughs) So they, yeah, they decided to just uh, yeah the whole. Digging up graves, too much work. Yeah. Kill them. And it was, they they were not careful about it. Oh, no. Like at all. Like it was well-known people. Uh, They weren't going the next town over or anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) It was, they were really sloppy about it. They were really sloppy about it. And they ended up killing 16 people before they were finally caught. Um, The medical school that they were selling it to probably knew. They were never proved to have known, but the doctor there, uh, Dr. Shaw, yeah, he most likely knew what was going on there. He probably knew some of the people actually that were dropped off. Oh man! Yeah, it was it was pretty grisly. This was uh, around 1829. Uh, within the next three uh, within the next three years, the Anatomy Act of 1832 was passed, which first of all regulated who could sell cadavers to medical schools. Probably a good idea. Second, put a, a licensing body in place for people performing. Anat- uh, well, they called them anatomists, so people performing dissections. So they had to basically document uh, a chain of custody of the body okay. to make sure that everything is kosher from the time the you know the person is executed or or otherwise you know state sanctioned uh, donated to 
the medical school until the the cadaver is no longer being used and is buried. So they had to show the entire time where the body was, how it was being cared for. Mm -hmm. And number three, widened access to unclaimed cadavers. So what we were talking about earlier, where wards of the state otherwise... um, or, or otherwise unclaimed bodies would eventually be donated to science rather than buried, even if they weren't a criminal, which relieved most of the pressure and actually uh, led to a bit of a magic medical revolution uh, in Britain because enough people could be appropriately uh, trained because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the training was being carried out by the proper professionals. Uh, there were more bodies to use for this training. And uh, uh, yeah, it, it really relieved that pressure. pressure. But the, the 19th century uh, was a bit of a renaissance in terms of our uh, understanding of anatomy. This is when Gray's Anatomy was first published in, in 1858 by Dr. Henry Gray, which is still considered one of the standards of uh, anatomical textbooks mm-hmm. in the medical field. Yeah, first edition was 1858. And it was, I mean, obviously it's, it's updated. Uh, I believe it's updated 41 times now. Mm-hmm. But even the first edition was night and day compared to textbooks from a century earlier. It is easily recognizable as a working uh, medical textbook. The mm-hmm. information in there is decent information and and is enough to give someone a modern understanding of human anatomy. So this has involved very little living surgery. But like, you need to know what you're doing in there. <laughs> it's really important that we talk about it. And, and I mean, I don't think, I don't think dissection should be left off the table when talking about surgery because yeah, it's after death, but I mean, the, the uh, amount of benefit it gives the medical community as a whole is, yeah. is it, it's, it's hard to describe how beneficial that is. People need to know what they're doing in order to perform medicine. Yeah. So yeah, we've gone from uh, cutting up monkeys and pretending they're humans <laughs> to uh, basically what we know now as, as the science of anatomy in, yeah, we'll, we'll call the, mid, uh, the mid-1850s or, or the mid-19th century, rather, uh, a decent point of, you know, let, let's call it more or less modern and, and leave that transition uh, there. Because I think, you know, not to, not to discount any information we've gained since then, but uh, they're definitely adding to a, a solid foundation after that point. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think that's probably good for uh, anatomy. And uh, why don't we take a break there? And next time we're going to talk about anesthesiology, which I'm very excited about, by the way, <laughs> and uh, sanitation, which sounds super Yay. boring, but is way more interesting than you're going to think. So <laughs> we'll uh, we'll take a break there. By the 1840s, surgery had come a long way from trepanning and trauma care, and our knowledge of anatomy had finally begun to reflect the realities of our biological makeup, which is very important. But we still had a few major problems to solve, one being the ability to manage the pain and trauma of surgery, and the other being how to keep surgical sites free from infection after operations. Next time, we'll discuss both of these problems, as well as the amazing pace at which advancements were made once surgery was finally modernized. That episode will be up on March 15th. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. 
If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI 101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI 101.